know, it was Keith last week, then John, now Jared. Appreciate you men for doing that to me. Thanks. Good, nice. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, for me, my cup is already overflowing from this morning. Wow. Uh, thank you men for uh, using your gifts to lead us uh, to that place. Wow, John, that song, uh, we do stand in the presence of a holy God this morning. Thank you for that. What a, what a blessing. What a treat. Jared, you're right. God watches over us, and though he does what he does, and we don't understand it, he still watches over us. So, what, what an amazing morning already. Yeah, this is one of those mornings like I could pray and we could just go to lunch. I'm, I'm, my cup is full. But I still get the great privilege and honor to preach God's words to God's people, and so I'd like to do that. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We finished last week, we finished the book of Jonah. Uh, and in Jonah, we saw a prophet that ran from God. And then at the very end, uh, God kind of calls out to him. And for the last several weeks, as I've been thinking and praying about us here at Powell's Chapel, and just what God has for us and where God is taking us, I, I thought, what, what, there's no better place than to go to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. As a new pastor, it's this idea for me, Jesus Christ himself writes these seven letters to these seven churches, and we'll see throughout these next seven weeks, uh, the title of the series is uh, Letters from the King. The king writes his his servants, his people, a letter. I kept thinking to myself, what if God himself were to send us a penned letter? What would it say to Powell's chapel? What would he have to say to us? You see, there's a lot of things that happen in the letter. When someone writes a letter, they do it with purpose, they do it with intention. You know, back in the day before email came, uh, there had to be a lot of thought once that letter went out. So you had soldiers writing home to tell their family what was happening in their hearts on the battlefield. You had loved ones sending love letters to who they really cared about. And so there was an intention, there was purpose, unlike email, unlike a text message, that it just our communication is just now quickly spread so fast that there's not really much thought or a heart into a text message or even into an email a lot of times. So here, God himself, through Jesus Christ, writes a letter to his bride, the church. I don't know if you, as husbands, have ever written your wife, your bride, a letter. We're going to see this, how Jesus writes his bride a letter. What Jesus does is he comes to each of the seven churches and says to the seven churches, this is your greatest need. In all seven churches, the need does not change. And I believe it's true for us today here at Powell's Chapel. The greatest need for Ch Powell's Chapel is not to be relevant. The church has been lost in being relevant with the culture. We see that. We do not need to be relevant here at Powell's Chapel. We do not need to even be concerned necessarily with what style of music we play or we don't play here at Powell's Chapel. We don't need to be concerned with, do we have the greatest website? Are we have a presence on the internet. That's not our greatest need. Though some of those may even be important, that's not our need. 
Our greatest need, and God shows us through Jesus, through these seven churches, our greatest need is to know God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And the second is just like it, is to make him known. That is our greatest need at Powell's Chapel. And all the other things that we will do out of that come out of that. What music we play or don't play come out of that decision. Is everything that we're going to do here at Powell's Chapel is to know God and to make him known. Because nothing else matters. We saw that this morning. This isn't the, the smoke and light show up here, but we had two godly men sing their hearts out. And I don't know about you. We didn't have a drum kit. We didn't have a rock band, but we had two godly men singing their hearts out. So it's not about rel relevancy this morning. It's about do we love God with everything that we have? And with everything that we have out of loving God, do we love this lost community? This lost community that does not care about the music we play, I guarantee that. They don't care about the building we have or we don't have, I guarantee that. What this lost world needs desperately from us as Christians is to see us here in this town loving God with everything that we have and loving them the same way. You know, that's one of the things that I've shared with you um, already this morning. My guests are here from Florida, and they shared this already. The thing that sets Powell's Chapel apart is how you love people. We do a great job at loving people at Powell's Chapel. So I think that would be one of the things, and we'll see that here in this letter. That if God were to write us Powell's Chapel letter, I think he would affirm us of how we love people. But there's other things that God is going to say to these seven churches. You see, if you think of the seven churches, here's the structure of the layout of these seven churches, how John, the writer, writes these through Jesus. It's as if, just think of this as a picture. We have a picture up here, a picture frame, a mat, and a picture in it. And so the first two, the first church and the last church here in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 are the frame of the church. The first church and the last church frame it all out for us. And God through Jesus says through John, hey, it's about losing your first love. That's the frame of the, how the structure happens. The next two, the, the second church and the last, second to last church are the mat of the picture. And these two churches, God does not condemn but he gives them applause for what they're doing right. It's the same is true in a picture frame. When you mat a picture, the mat of the picture really pulls out what's, what's in the mat, the picture itself. So here's the frame. God's saying you're loving, you've lost your first love, and then he goes into the mat of the picture and says, but here's the things that the church is doing right, and then he goes into the middle, and the, the picture that we see that's framed out for us is a bleak picture. The three middle churches, I hope, would never be written about Powell's Chapel. But God, through Jesus, is going to spend some time on what it looks like for us as a church to lose our effectiveness. And so much so, it goes from bad to worse as the picture comes and hones in on the middle church. The middle church, and I pray and have prayed as I've been studying this passage, that this would not be true about Powell's Chapel. He says these words, it's though you are dead. So we see the picture as, as God is framing it all out. He's saying, this is what's most important. My prayer for the church, my prayer for the bride is that you would not be dead. So that's the framework of what it looks like for us as we journey through these next seven weeks of these seven churches.
what would the letter be if God were to write us a letter at Passover? Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Revelation chapter 2. God, thanks so much for what you've already done in this place. I pray, God, with all of my heart that we have honored you already. Through fellowship, through music, through our giving. Your glory and your renown would be known. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your holy word this morning. What do you have for us as a church? God, I pray that it would be true about us here at Powell's Chapel. That we would love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul and strength. And we'd love others the same way. Lead us and guide us through this journey of the seven churches. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said this morning, we're starting a series called uh, Letters from the King. The first church is the Church of Ephesus. And so this morning's title, the message is Dear Ephesus. Dear Ephesus. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the Church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ears, let him hear the Spirit say to the churches, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we'll see in verse 1, this is where we'll see. The the outline for this morning uh, goes like this. We'll see first, Jesus the authority. That's verse 1. Verse 2 through 6 is the address to the church. And the last verse, verse 7, is God's appeal or God's affirmation to the church. So here's who Jesus is writing to. He's writing to the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus has great history. Powell's Chapel has great history. The, the, the church of Ephesus at this time is the, the, the mother of all the other churches that are written to. This church, the church in Ephesus, is the one that made and had the, the other six churches come out of her. This is the lineage of the church of Ephesus. Uh, wow, I, I would not want to follow these men as a pastor. It was started by two people, Paul's dear friends, in the city of Ephesus. We'll talk about the city of Ephesus here in a second. Two of Paul's dearest friends founded this small church. And then out of that, that's found in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, 24 says the first preacher, the first pastor that came to the church of Ephesus was Apollos. Apollos was a gifted teacher, a gifted speaker, a gifted communicator. He had great ability to orate God's word to God's people. That's their first pastor. And then out of that comes Paul. We know Paul. Paul is the greatest missionary to ever walk the planet. And then Paul, along the way, is getting his protege, young Timothy, and is discipling young Timothy. And Timothy 
Uh, Paul gives the church over to young Timothy, and Timothy begins to minister and shepherd God's people at this church. At this time, the church begins to grow and grow and grow uh, under Timothy's leadership to a place that we come now that uh, the apostle John takes over as the pastor. Could you imagine that being the lineage of this church? So you have Paul, the greatest missionary. You have uh, Apollos. You have Timothy. You have John. That's the rich history of this church, and this history has a lot of people coming to it, and it has a passion for God, and it has a passion for lost people, so much so that this passion for lost people began to spread all over Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Greek, uh, Turkey. And so these other churches that we'll read over the next six weeks have been planted from this great church. And yet, we'll see, Jesus has something against them. Here's the city of Ephesus. So here's this small group of believers in this huge city. Ephesus at that time was the greatest city of the known world. It'd be like a small group of people going into New York City and playing a church. Ephesus was known as a harbor port. So all the trades, imports, and exports were coming in and through Ephesus. And so not only did it have all this trade, but as you see around the United States, those large port cities also have a great deal of culture. So it is a cultural icon here in Ephesus. And at the same time, it grew to about 500,000 people in this small city. But the thing that Ephesus was most known for was its worship to the goddess of Diana. And that time, the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. That's how massive this place was. And this place was filled with wickedness. And yet God decides through these two people to plant a church, to be what he says here in Revelation chapter 2, is to what? To be a lampstand. That word lampstand just refers back to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that we, we would not put a light in a city on the top of the hill to be put out. This, this church was put in this city to be a light in a dark place. So that's where this church is. That's what this church is. And here's what Jesus says about that. He says, okay, this is where you are. This is who you are. Now let me speak and tell you, I have the authority over that. And that's what he says in verse 1. He says, to the angel. The angel simply means the messenger or the pastor. So here's Jesus penning a letter to the pastor of the church. It says, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, right? And he says this, the words of him who holds. So these are the words of Christ himself. He says, I hold the seven pastors in my hand. I have complete control over them. I have them in my hand. I'm watching over them. They're mine. They belong to me. He says, so I have authority in their lives. I have authority in your life because you belong to me. And he says this, as it follows, who holds the seven stars. The stars is simply goes back to the word angel, meaning the pastors in his right hand. He says this, who walks among the golden lamps. And so not only does God hold these pastors in his hand, but he also walks in and amongst God's people. That's amazing that God isn't just saying, I'm a God that stands over and watches over all things, though he does. He also says, no, I also come and walk among you. 
I walk with you in the church. And so it's saying, I have authority to speak into this because I hold you in my hand and I'm with you. I don't know about you, but I can't stand people that have authority in my life and yet they never even speak, they speak into it and I'm like, you're talking to me from 400,000 miles away. You have no idea what's going on in my life. And Jesus is saying, no, I know exactly what's going on in your life. And he said, because I know exactly what's going on in your life, I'm going to address what's going on in your life. That's the kind of God we have. It's all the way back to what we journeyed through Jonah with. That we do have a very personal God that loves us and wants to be in relationship with us and is, as believers, is in relationship with us. So he says, this is the authority that I speak. So he writes these letters, and this will be true for the seven. He writes with authority. Thank God we have a God that has authority. He doesn't just wing things. I don't know about you, but when people wing things, they do it haphazardly, and it's dangerous. We don't have a a dangerous God in that way. We have a dangerous God in a lot of other ways, but not that way, because he walks among us. God himself is saying to us through this letter, God is here in our midst. Just like we just said, this is holy ground because God himself is here this morning. So he's speaking with great authority to these churches. And this is his address to this small church. He says to them in verses 2 through 6, he says, these are the nine things that you are doing well. We'll look at verse 2 and 3 and then skip 4 and 5 and get to 6. He says, these are nine things that you're doing well as a church. He says, I know your works. One. So the works just means I know all that you're doing. I know everything that you're doing. God himself knows all that we're doing here at Palace Chapel. He says, I know your works. That's the first thing he knows. He says, I know your toil. I know the very things. I know what, what you're doing and I know how you're doing it. He says this, he says this about it. And I know in your working and in your toiling, you do it with much patience. The work of the Lord, we must be patient. I wish results were happening fast, but they don't. Sometimes they do, but most of the times they don't. And so God, through Christ, is affirming their patient endurance as they toil and they work for the things of the Lord, as they're presenting the gospel to people. And he says this, the other thing, this is the fourth thing that I commend you for. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. He's saying, you know my word so much that the things that offend me offend you. And you can't stand it. Is that true for us? Is that true for me? Like this Friday, that offended a holy God. Does it offend us? Does our country saying yes to homosexual marriage not cause us as believers to grieve that. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. You, you are against those who do evil. It grieves your heart because you know it grieves my heart. Does the things that grieve God's heart grieve our hearts? And Jesus is saying to this church, oh yes it does. And then he says this, this is the fifth thing that you have. You cannot bear with those who do evil, but you have tested them who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The other thing is, he says, you know God's word so much that when people preach against what I have taught you to preach, you know God's word so much that you know what they're teaching is false. Do we know God's word that way? 
There's a lot of people in our world that say they love God and believe God. Just watch the Super Bowl. But then you watch them two days later in the news. It's like what you just said about who God is and how you live your life, those two things are not going together. And what Jesus is saying to the church is, you know me so well and you know my word so well that it, it offends you and you come against that. And so he's saying, you test those who call themselves believers and are not. Are we doing the same? Are we just willy-nilly with what people say they believe? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're a Christian. They're a Christian. No, being a Christian means something. We're held to a standard. That standard has been polluted. And the sad part is we, the American church, are letting it be polluted. We must take a stand on things. And taking a stand on things, we'll see what happens when we take a stand on things. These men, these women in Ephesus took a stand on what they believed to be true. And he says to them, this is what he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. I know that when you take a stand for me, persecution comes. If you take a stand for God, you will be persecuted. That's not going to make a Hallmark card, but I promise that's what's going to happen. When you and I stand for what we believe to be true, the gospel is offensive to lost people. And I don't mean we need to offend people, but are we offending people with what we believe to be true? Because this is very offensive. This calls people how to live life differently, and our world says, ah, we don't have to. We can do both. We can have the riches of being a believer and have all the riches of the world. And God is saying, no, no, no. Because when you take a stand for God, there will be persecution. And in my life, I have to ask myself, am I being persecuted? Because if I'm not being persecuted, maybe I'm not taking a stand. Because if I read throughout the New Testament, I see Godly men taking a godly stand and every single one of them was persecuted. Paul was beat to an inch of his life. I have not done that yet. Praise the Lord. We see John who's writing this letter. Where John is writing this letter, John is in exile on a remote island because of his stand for, for God. When we take a stand, we will be persecuted. My greatest fear, I, I read it this morning. My dear friend Phil, who's sitting with us, sent me this this morning. I was like, oh, that is terrifying. This writer says, my fear is that we, the American church, has not, not felt or seen the persecution yet. But it's coming. I was like, oh, man. And I think Friday opened the gates for that. We opened the gates of hell because of that decision. We must take a stand for what we believe to be right and true, and there will be persecution. And God says, when you are persecuted, I see that, and I affirm that, and you wait patiently. You continue to bear up in my name, because there's a promise coming. We'll get to the promise at the end of the chapter. Amen. If we don't have a promise, let's pack it up and go home. We have a promise. The promise is a risen Christ that sets us free and lets us live life to the full. That full does not mean we won't be persecuted, but we'll live a full life. He goes on and says this. This is the other thing. He says, you test the apostles who aren't apostles. You bear up when you're persecuted, and you don't grow worried. You continue to do it day after day after day after day after day. 
day after day after day. That is this, this word picture. He's saying, you are a steady drumbeat. It doesn't grow silent, and it doesn't stop. Is that true for us at Powell's Chapel? That we are not growing weary tonight, today? And the last thing he says this, and we'll get to this in another book, in another letter. He says, you hate the Nicolaitans. You hate what the Nicolaitans do. And the Nicolaitans were a wicked, wicked, wicked people. They were a wicked group of people. What they did was they were sucking people away from Christianity in such a way that didn't look like they were sucking them away to get into immorality. How often is that true? Look at our world. The world has sucked believers into thinking things that are right that are totally against God. And he says, you stand against that as well. You hate those things, and I hate those things. And so here Jesus is affirming the church. Here's the things that they're doing well. Here's the things that are shaping them and molding them. And we would think, and we could end the letter there and think, man, and give them a hand clap. But then Jesus says in verse 4, and this is the greatest fear for me of us here at the church. He says this, you've done all these things well. These are the things you're doing well. He says in verse 4, but I have this against you. Oh, man. That you have abandoned your first love. What Jesus is saying there, he's saying, hey, all of your orthodoxy is right. There's two things. The, the, the orthodoxy is what we believe to be true about God. Orthodoxy just simply means we are in line with a holy God theologically, and we believe that to be true of God's word. And God says, these are the things you believe this to be true. And then he says, the other part of what he's saying to them is what they'll call, the, the old writers call their orthopraxy, what they're doing. So we have the orthodoxy of what we believe to be true, and then we, how do we flesh those things out? It's called orthopraxy. And so he's saying your orthodoxy is right and your orthopraxy is right, but your heart behind those two is wrong. It doesn't matter what you know and how you do it, is what Jesus says. That is scary, that I could live a life and so in line with God and think I have it all right because I believe the things to be true about God and I live my life that way in my practice, daily practice, and yet where am I doing it from? And that's what Jesus has a problem with. He's saying it's not about what you know and it's not about what you do, but it's about where it comes from. You've abandoned your first love. Think about that. I can do all the things and say all the things to Jenny I want. I can pen a great letter. And I can buy great flowers. But if they're not coming from a place that's true in my heart, they don't matter at all. You see, dating Jenny, man, my love was reckless, was abandonment, and was half crazy. I, I mean, I look back, I'm like, oh, Lord, and I got two kids. I'm thinking, oh, don't do what I did. But I was in love with Jenny. I, I mean, I, I, at the time I had a Jeep Wrangler, no top, because I took it off and never put it back on, mildew everywhere in the car. And I would just drive like a madman to, to and fro from her house. I mean, leave work early, don't go to work, don't go to class. I mean, you name it, I, I was in love with Jenny. I'm not saying that I condone that, don't do that, but I'm just telling you, I love Jenny. And there's so often, as I look in my marriage of 10 years, there's times that 
I do and say the right things, but I'm just doing and saying the right things. And that's what Jesus has a problem with. It has to come from our hearts. We have to have heart change. God is never here to change our minds or our actions. God wants to change our hearts because when our hearts are changed, the actions and the minds will flow out of those two things. And so he says this, yes, you've done all this right, but where have you done it from? You've abandoned the love you had at first. We'll get to what their love looked like at first. He says this, in the address. It's a threefold uh, call back to himself in verse 4. I have this against you. You abandoned the love you had at first. Three things that we must do as a church, that they must do as a church. The first, he says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Remember where you have fallen. Remember where you came from, is what Jesus is saying. Do you and I have a constant daily reminder of where we come from? Do we remember what it was like apart from Jesus Christ? Do we remember that this morning? Because apart from Christ, we were dead in our transgression, Romans says. And it says that all of us have done that, and we're all subject to hell because of that. Do we know where we've fallen or have come from? That God himself chose us in spite of us out of that fallenness to give us a life and set us free. Do we tell ourselves daily the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it just the cross we wear on our neck or tattoo on our arm? It is a great privilege for us to be believers. Do we remind ourselves every day of where you've come from? I try to every morning, get up in the morning and walk myself through my high school days of all the wickedness. Because at the end of high school, there's a great reminder of a redeeming Christ that set me free of all those things. And I must remind myself, I've got an enemy that wants me to forget where I come from. He wants me to forget where I've come from. He wants me to forget all the things that I've done in my past. He wants me to forget those things. Yes, God forgives us of those things, but yet I must be reminded of those things because when I'm reminded of those things, I get to stand in the presence of a holy God and just say thank you daily. Thank you for saving me. So are we remembering where we have come from this morning? The second thing he says this, in remembering where we come from and what's happened to us. Let's just look a few verses over in chapter 1, verse 5. This is what John says in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler and kings of the earth. Remember, we have a faithful God. We have a God who's a witness. We have the first among dead. We have a ruler. We have a king. He says, to him who loves us and what has freed us from our sin by his blood. That's what we remind ourselves every day. Do we remind ourselves of the blood of Christ every day? That's what Jesus says to this church for us to get back to loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving others the same way. We must remember the blood of Christ this morning. The next thing that he says this in verse 5. Repent. Repentance just says anything that's taking you away from remembering. Repent, turn from those things. 
Are there things in your life that are contrary to God? That's called sin. Sin is the very thing that separates us from God and the thing that brings us back to Christ himself is through repentance. Do we repent? We'll only repent when we remember where we've fallen from. So he calls us to a place of repentance. And the last thing that he says for the church to do, and I believe it's true for us this morning, is this. We must repent and what? Do the works. We must return to what we did at first. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. I asked myself this question this week. What did the church in Ephesus do at first? If you're calling the church of Ephesus to do what they did at first, what did they do? Therefore, I'll know what to do. I'll know how to live. And so Acts chapter 19. Here Paul is in the great city of Ephesus, and he's talking to the church. Right after what he says, there's a riot that breaks out. But this is what he says. He says also, in verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came what? What did they come doing? They came confessing and divulging their practices. And so what Jesus is saying is if you are going to return back to what you did at first, what did you do at first, small church? What did you do, precious church? What did you do, bride of Christ? The two things they did at first, this is at the very beginning of the church. He says the two things that you did were this. You repented, you confessed your sins, and you divulged your practices. You quit living the way you were living. That's got to be true for us today. And that comes through what he just told them. Remember where you've come from and repent and return to what you were doing. Let us as a church return to what God has called us to do. And then Jesus goes on and says this. He says, here's the consequence if you don't remember, you don't repent, and you don't return. He says this. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you do not remember, repent, and return, I will take your lampstand and put it out. What harsh words by Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, the light that you once had, I will extinguish the light. You will no longer be effective in the city that I've placed you in. Again, I've said this every week from week one that I've been here. God still has Powell's Chapel here since the Civil War for a reason. I do not believe it's in a few months to put us out. I do not believe that with all of my heart. And yet God is calling us as a church and saying to us as a church, it's true for us as it is true for them unless we repent of the things that are keeping us from loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and repent of the things that are taking us away from explaining him and bringing him to other people. He's saying I will put you out. I'll take that little light of yours and put it out. And he says this, this is the great promise, the great appeal in verse 7. He's saying I don't want to do that. Thank God. And he says this, He who has ears, let him hear. I pray this morning that our ears are open. And I don't mean these ears, I mean this ear. I pray that the ears of our heart are open this morning to the Holy Spirit, the same way that he says there, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all the churches. To the one who conquers, perseverance of the saints. To those who conquer, to those who endure and continue to endure, this is the great promise I'll have for you. I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is the promise 
of, of the paradise of God is what God is saying here through Jesus is if you continue to live out your life in these ways to remember, repent, and return, and you continue to do that and you continue to remain faithful to me, I'm faithful to you and I will return you to wait the way it's always been. That's the great promise. You see, as believers this morning, this is the only hell we'll know. This is the only hell that we'll know. There's a great paradise waiting for us as we endure patiently for his return or his return to call us home to himself. This is the only hell. But if you're here this morning, this is just the tip of the iceberg of the hell that you're experiencing. I've said it before, from this very place, hell isn't terrible because it's hot. Hell isn't terrible because there's bad people there. Hell isn't terrible because that's where Satan is. Hell is terrible and horrendous because the very presence of God is not there. That's what makes hell, hell. At least here on this earth, we still have the presence of God with us. And so God is saying through Jesus to this church, if you endure, if you return back to your first love and you remain faithful to me through all the persecution, oh, there's a paradise waiting for you. There's paradise still waiting for us. Will we as a church continue to wait patiently for the Lord? We must remember and we must continue to repent and we must continue to return to the things that stir our affection for a holy God. I pray that would be true for us this morning. And so this morning, if God were to write us a letter, what would be all the things that he would say, oh, you're doing well, church, but this is what I have against you. Has Powell Chapel abandoned its first love? I hope not. I pray not. But if it is, let us return to him. He has something waiting for us in our return. Let us pray. God, thanks for this church. Example of so many things to do well. And yet you have one thing against them. Their hearts. And God, I pray that for us this morning here at Powell's Chapel, is our hearts in line with your heart? And if it's not, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit in this moment would bring deep conviction to us. And we would come to a place to remember where we've fallen to repent of the things that rob us from you and we return to the things that stir our affections for you. Continue to lead this sweet church to be a light in this lost community, God. It's so scary to see the depravity continue to grow around us. God, I pray that we would hold fast to you that we be reminded of promise this morning. And the promise is if we patiently endure, that there's a paradise waiting for us. You've prepared a place for us, Lord Jesus, and you continue to prepare that place for us, even in these moments. Thank you for that. Continue to lead us and guide us as a church. Continue to use this church for your renown and for your glory and to be a beacon of light to this lost, lost community. I will pray, I pray, if there's anyone here that does not know you this morning, that this morning they would understand that you, Jesus Christ, gave all of your life for them by hanging on the cross to accomplish what only you can do that they cannot do, and that's to be back in relationship with you by bridging the gap of the deep chasm of sin. 
You offered a way, Jesus, back to your Father, the cross of Jesus. I pray for you, Holy Spirit, that you'd bring conviction. If there's anyone here that does not know you, that you would, in this moment, draw them deeply to yourself. And I pray, God, for us as believers, God, I pray that we continue to hold fast to you. Even this morning, we would rejoice in you because of the great things that you do in and through us. Lead us and guide us. I pray this in your sweet and famous name. Amen.